Now, last week, I shared on God first, family then. That's the order that it should be. Whenever you attend any wedding, the minister will commonly say, Brothers and sisters or beloved, we are gathered together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And then after that, the minister will say, of the world's three great institutions, the home, the church, and the state, the home is the oldest and the most sacred. And that's why we talked about last week, family. But family is just one the oldest and the most sacred of all institutions. But there's only one aspect of how God works in this world. The other two aspects are, of course, the home, the church, and the state. So the home is the oldest and sacred because family is most important. If you destroy family, the church is destroyed, the government is destroyed, the state is destroyed. That's why we have to nurture, build, protect the home or the family. But then there is also the church and the government. And so this morning, I'd like to talk more about the interaction between the church and the government. And more specifically on the government. My text is taken from Matthew chapter 22, verse 21. Very simple, straightforward. But it was a trick question that Jesus was posed with in this passage of Scripture. Somebody came up to Jesus and asked, Master, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus knew that they were just trying to catch him. Politically, to say the wrong thing. And Jesus replied by saying, give me a coin. Show me a coin. And they gave him a denarius. Took up the coin and he asked, whose inscription is on this coin? Whose image is on the coin? And so, of course, it's obvious they say Caesar. And Jesus says, then... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Wow! And the Bible says they marvel at this answer of Jesus. Such wisdom, they couldn't catch him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now many have interpreted and taken this passage to mean as though Caesar belongs to one corner, God belongs to one corner. And they have nothing to do with each other. That's not what Jesus said. There are things that we render to Caesar, there are things that we render to God, yes. But it doesn't mean the exclusion of one and the other. Question is, what is Caesar's? And what is God's? 
which one of our life, which one of the institutions belong to Caesar and which one belongs to God? And will the two ever intersect? And when we talk about Caesar, we, in history, we know about Julius Caesar. Everyone, I think most of us know, but when we talk about Caesar, we are talking not just about Julius Caesar, not just about Augustus, not about Nero, not just about Constantine. We are talking about the whole Roman Empire, the higher power. And in those days, Rome was very strong. They have conquered the world and they have come up with their laws, Roman laws were, were fantastic. They were the ones who came up with the Senate and all the government and the authorities and structures and all that. That was their pride. So we are talking about the higher powers, the government at that time. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. First of all, let's consider a biblical worldview of government. God and Caesar God and government, what is this government? When we talk about politics, we are talking about the art or science of running a government or state affairs. And when we talk about government, it refers to the branches of government that administrate the affairs of a country. So what's the biblical view of the government? First of all, government is a God-appointed institution. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. So it's very clearly stated here. Government. Is from God. Family, or home, church, and state. The state is from the Lord. It is a God-appointed institution. Now you find that in the Bible, there are different kinds of government that we see. Even right from the days of Abraham, the government of, the, of his day in that sense was patriarchal. It was a patriarchal system. And then after that, in the wilderness, there was the tribal system of governance. And then after that, during the times of the judges, Joshua and the judges, there is a theocracy, supposedly to be government under God. And then after that, there was uh, King Saul and David, Solomon. There was the monarchy system that came into place. And then later on under the Sanhedrin, there was the representative. And guess what? In the future, what kind of government are we going to have? It's going to be absolute dictatorship. No, we don't want dictatorship. The moment we hear dictator, wow, all kinds of images come into our mind. But that kind of dictatorship is a good, absolutely good dictatorship. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the Bible here says, there is no authority except from God. It does not matter 
how a certain government is formed, whether it be by dynasty, whether it be by military coup, whether it be by election and all those things, there are different ways. And yet, the Bible just gave a general guide here and says there is no authority except from God. The word authority here comes from the Greek word exousia. And exousia means delegated authority. In other words, the government has no authority of themselves except it has been delegated. And of course, in the ultimate sense, that delegation comes from God. God is the one who authorized the government. And of course, in the democracy, it was the people that authorized even the government. <clears throat> but ultimately, it's God who gave the authority, whether it be in a family, government, church, and even business. And especially in Romans chapter 13, Paul makes it very clear. We have to understand, otherwise we have a warped idea of what submission to government is all about. So he says here, it is exousia, delegated from God himself. And so, in the family, we have the father, the mother, authority over the children. In the government, we have national leaders, local authorities, and citizens. In the church, we have the church leaders and members in business, employer, employees. So you find that God's authority covers every area of our life. So government is God-appointed. Number two, government is needful. We need government. Otherwise, there will be chaos, rampant chaos and disorder if there is no civil government. There are two basic functions of government. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake. Alright, it says, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, institution, whether it be as the emperor, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, for what purpose? To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the two basic functions of government is basically to restrain evil and to promote good. We wish that every government realized that. That is the biblical view. Restrain evil, promote good. So simple. And yet, so many governments mess up in this area. Now, of course, we need government to restrain evil. Otherwise, it's anarchy. Every man for himself. I, I do what I like, you do what you like, there will be chaos. Even on the road, we need law. Otherwise, everybody will be knocking into one another. We, have, we need, we need a government, all right? We need a police force. We need an army. If there are no policemen, can you just imagine anybody can walk into your house and do anything they like, rob, kill, rape, and do anything? So government is needed, definitely, to restrain evil. But not only to restrain evil, but to promote good. And the good here covers every area. Good, you know, good laws that will prosper the country. Good, good uh, 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 benefits, good uh, opportunities that will prosper the country. That will be good for the welfare of the nation. 
Good includes safety, security. So that we don't have to wonder, is it safe to walk along that, along that street? Good in every area. So that's the function of government. It says, Romans 13, 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. It trickles down even to the individual. So that's a function of government as we understand it. And then comes a tough part. We are to obey and submit to the government. Whoa. Well, actually we don't have problem with that, right? If the government is good, we have no problem in submitting, right? What if the government is corrupt and evil? Ah, that's where we got problem with that, all right? But here in Romans, it gives a general guideline and says submit. Why submit to government? And this is something that many of us may not understand, may not even appreciate. We submit because it is for the time and purposes of God for which He has ordained. For the time and purposes of God for which He has ordained. And many times we do not understand the time and the purposes of God. When we see evil government, corrupt government, manipulative government, we ask God, how can you allow all of this? How can I submit to this kind of thing? But even through wicked government, corrupt government, God still has His time and purposes. And He can use any one of these. It's been evident even in the Scripture. Romans 13, 2, Therefore, whoever resists or authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so we are to submit. Is there any time that we cannot submit? Yeah, there are examples in the Bible along this line. In Acts chapter, hmm, sorry, I, that was blocked out. I think it's 5, 529, I think. We, when Paul, sorry, <coughs> when Peter you know, and, and, his, and the disciples were, were, were commanded by the authorities, do not preach the name of Jesus anymore. Did he, did he obey that command? No. He made a statement, we ought to obey God rather than men. It is only when the earthly laws or regulations are in harmony with the divine law that it is the believer's duty to submit to them. And even if those laws are against the divine laws, we are, I, I, now this is just my personal opinion, we are not to take arms. We are not to go out and fight and kill and revolt in that sense. There may be peaceful protests. We may make our voice known. We may speak prophetically to the nation. There are examples in the Bible where laws of the land cannot be followed. Exodus 117 to 22, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. 
because they feared God. Joshua 2.1, Rahab, 2 Kings 11 verse 1, Ataliah, and even people like Daniel, you know, in the courts of, uh, in the palace of the Persian kings, you know, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, and others, you find that, you know, laws were passed, laws that prohibit even the Jews to pray. And it's still happening today. And Daniel says, I cannot follow that. And so he purposely opened the window and prayed to the God of heaven. He was reported. The three Hebrew children, they were commanded to bow down before the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They refused. That kind of a law they cannot obey. Thrown, one thrown into the lions, then the other thrown into the, uh, into the fire. But God was with them. When they stood up for what is right and what is according to God's decree. So it's not absolute in that sense. Number four, God still rules in the kingdom of man. God still rules in the kingdom of man. Amen? God is greater than government. God is greater than government. Government is a human institution. We have to honour, respect, submit, yes. But at the end of the day, we know whatever form of government there is, whoever is in charge, God still rules in the kingdom of man. Proverbs 21 verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Jesus, before Pontius Pilate, who says, Are you not answering me? Don't you know that I have authority over your life? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. The authority is from above. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, and Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, likewise. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. The Most High rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of man. So God still rules in the kingdom of man. But question is, well, before that, I know that we have a lot of opinion about Donald Trump. He makes all kinds of controversial statements, but one statement he made while he was at Liberty University, which is very striking. He says, in America, we don't worship government. We worship God. Hallelujah. He's right at that point. Because God is the ultimate. He rules over the kingdom of man. He sets up one king, an empire, and he pulls down another. But what about wicked government, corrupt government? What do we do? Now you find that there are times that God allows people to choose wicked leaders. God knows it already. God knows the end already. But the people were just stubborn. Or just, they just do not see it. And God gave us free will even to exercise our free will in the selection of what kind of leaders we want. So in Hosea chapter 8, verse 4, they have set up kings, but not by me. 
They have made princes and I knew it not. Not that God doesn't know, he, knows it. he knew it, but he did not approve of it and yet he allowed them. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, when the people asked for a king. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God allowed. If, the, if that's what the people want, God can, will not even go against the exercise of the free will of man. That's why we have so many problems in so many places. But God will reveal the consequences. If that's what you want, this is what will happen. Proverbs chapter 9, sorry, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When there is a righteousness in the nation, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. The people groan. People groan. In our land, are our people rejoicing or are we groaning? Don't answer. Don't answer. But there's an indication. There's an indication of whether righteousness rules or whether wickedness rules. Back to the people. Back to the people. But despite the wickedness of our rulers, there is hope. God wants us to trust Him enough that we look to Him for direction in choosing our leaders. He also wants us to trust Him when those leaders don't appear to do His will. We can still trust Him. But let me bring it closer home here, the responsibility of Christians. God and Caesar, Christians and government, what is our response? The first response is to pray. Everybody say pray. Pray, yes. I urge you first of all to pray. First Timothy chapter 2. First of all, above all things, we are to pray. Jeremiah 29 verse 7. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. You don't just pray for yourself. You pray for the welfare of the city. When the city prospers, when the land prospers, you will prosper as well. Our prosperity is linked to the destiny of our country, of our nation. So we have to pray. When we pray, we are acknowledging that God is really the one in charge. And no matter what happens, no matter who is elected or whatever kind of office, God is still in control. That's when we pray, we recognize that God, you are still on the throne. That's why we are approaching you. Always pray. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, for only God can change the times and the seasons for a country. No government can do that. No individuals can do that. It's in the hand of Almighty God. And when we pray, mighty things, great things begin to happen. We have just about two weeks to do it. Don't think that your prayer is inconsequential. Don't think that it doesn't make any difference. That's where 
we must gather together as often as possible to pray. In the morning watch, pray. Wednesday prayer meeting, pray. Next Tuesday, come along, come out and pray in the revival prayer. Every opportunity, pray, pray, pray for our land. More things are wrought through prayer than this world could ever dream, for, dream of. More governments are formed through prayer. More than just the polling booth. It is through prayer that we begin to shape the government of the day. So the first thing we need to do is to pray. And the second thing is to participate. Everybody say, pray and participate. Okay, P and P. Okay, pray and participate. Here is where some people say, oh, I am not interested in politics. It is not my cup of tea. It is out of my area. And some people think that to talk about politics, wow, it is to miss out. It is to detour. It is to be distracted from the mission of the church already. Some people feel that the mission of the church is just to preach the gospel. Not to get involved into politics, into the social arena and other issues. There is a mistaken idea that politics is not spiritual. There is a mistaken idea of the separation of the church and state. In America, they practice that very much. Separation of the church and state. And as a result, what happens? Atheism takes over. Ungodliness takes over. Liberalism takes over. Actually, the original formation of the idea of separation of church and state is to prevent the government from interfering in the affairs of the spiritual. But as people of God, we can become informed, imitating the children of Issachar, who knows the seasons and the time, and who are wise. So we need to examine issues and see what our biblical responsibility is with the government and not just to simply withdraw, avoid and hang our destiny and our children and our children's children's future just into the hands of the government. We are not to withdraw and avoid, but we are to participate. We need to get more involved in the local, state, and federal government. Jesus says, a light that is lit cannot be hidden. The influence of the Christian must be felt at every level. You are the soul of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's how we are to be. Now, to what level of involvement is, you know, as a church, we can speak out on certain issues. And I'm glad, you know, the CCM, CCF, NECF, our national bodies have spoken out on many issues to the government, through the government, on a, on a lot of things that affect the Christian state. But as individuals, you can be involved. 
I pray that God will raise up more politicians, more state assemblymen, more local councillors, so that you can influence the government, so that you can be the light and we can be the salt of the earth. Three reasons Christians should care about politics. The Christian worldview speaks to all areas of life. It is not just separation between the spiritual and the secular. But our worldview must speak to all areas of life. It is holistic in that sense. It covers every area. Spirit, soul, and body. Family, church, and government. Every areas. And we should make our impact known and felt even in these areas. And not just leave it to the secularists and not leave it to other religions to influence over the laws of this land. Now, politics are actually unavoidable. Everybody say, Jesus is Lord. Hey, you're already making a political statement. In those days, in the time of the Roman Empire, to say that Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not Lord. And you can be jailed for that. But you're already recognizing another king. Jesus is Lord. But actually, politics are unavoidable. You, you, talk, you talk to missionaries who try to enter into certain countries that are not accessible anymore. You go to the underground churches and you, you tell them that politics is not important. It's the politicians that make those laws. Visas, passport, rights, freedoms, liberty. So it involves us. It affects us. And we need to love our neighbour. Love our neighbour. Not just with words. It is great that we have. I think Christians are the most active in this area. Helping the poor, helping the needy, building hospitals, having food banks and all that. But loving our neighbour goes beyond just giving them food, a packet of food. Loving our neighbour means also influencing the laws of this land so that poverty can be eradicated, so that everybody can have equal share to the prosperity of the nation. We go to the root problem of it. Loving our neighbours, including having laws that will protect our children. And that's why you find that Christians have made a great impact in these areas. From the days of Rome itself, gladiatorial fights were outlawed because of Christians. And then in Europe, pedophile, Polygamy will rule out because of the influence of Christians and the love of our neighbours. In England, William Wilberforce was the one who ruled out even slave trade, abolished 
In America, it was Martin Luther King with the civil rights movement that ruled out racial discrimination. And there are many others. So, loving our neighbor is more than just giving them a pack of food. If we can have political engagement and influence in the public square, then we'll go to the root cause. So that's why we cannot say, I don't care. And one area in which we can participate is, of course, the election vote. That is our right and that is our privilege. Your vote matters. We are ambassadors of Christ, yes, but ambassadors even to the booth. When we vote, we help determine who will lead our nation, make our laws and protect our freedom. But there are some people who say, ah, I don't bother to vote. My vote will not make a difference. My vote does not matter. My vote will be wasted. But somebody said, bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Ah, tell your neighbor, that's not me. It's not me. And so come May the 9th, GE 14. There's going to be a vote cast for 222 parliamentary seats and 505 state seats. The nation will choose the next leaders for our country. Very important. How will we choose? Right in the days of Moses, Moses gave a guideline. You shall select out of all the people. You shall select. Select. By appointment then. You shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place them as leaders. God is looking for leaders who are able. We need able leadership in our country. There are many bright minds in our country, but many are living for other lands. Wasted. We need bright people, able people. Not just because of their seniority, not just because of their connection, but people who can really govern people who can really run the country. Able people, those who are God-fearing, those who hate dishonest gain. And those who are truthful. Pray that the 222 parliamentarians and the 505 state aduns that will be elected. Now, realistic, realistically speaking, not all will be these, but at least we pray for a majority. Then the nation will prosper. There is a bright future for Malaysia. Amen? There's a bright future for Malaysia. And after on May the 9th, when we cast our vote, be confident. But if, if elections don't go our way or judicial decisions disappoint you, remind yourself that God is unaffected. 
He removes kings and raises up kings according to his plan, according to David, Jeremiah. God is still in control. God will not be surprised at who wins in the election. But no matter who wins, we can put our hope in the Lord our God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Yes. Pray and participate. Pay your taxes. It's April already. Pay your taxes, choose your candidates, cast your vote. But do all of this with your hope anchored in an unchanging God who rules over all the affairs of man. Our hope is not just in human government. Whether it be Najib, Mahathir, Anwar, they are all just feeble men like you and me. We honour them, but they are feeble men. Somebody says, why are we making an election look as if we are looking for a Messiah? We are not looking for a Messiah. We already have a Messiah, Christians. Hallelujah! And Jesus is our Messiah. So our, our hope is anchored. No matter what happens, it's still anchored in God. The one who sets up one and puts down another. So we recognize as Christians also that are two kingdoms. The dual citizenship we have. How many of you have dual citizenship? You are a citizen of Malaysia. You are also a citizen of another country. Australia, United Kingdom, whatever. Don't put up your hand. There may be an agent here watching out for you. But actually, hey, we are citizens of two countries. Dual citizenship. Augustine in his book, City of God, making very, very plain. There is a city of God, there is a city of man. And when we dwell here on this earth, we are dwelling as in the city of man, then there are obligations and responsibilities and rights and privileges. But at the same time, our ultimate honour, our ultimate goal is the city of God. As born-again Christians, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And that's where our hope and our anchor ought to be. So here we stand, navigating the realities of dual citizenship with courage and with compassion. But just in case you think, well, the government, all that the government that we have here, that you see, is all that is going to be. Whether it be America or North Korea or the Middle East or Malaysia, is that all there is to government? No, there is more to come. There is a coming new government. Because so many have tried all kinds of government, 
and they have not really succeeded. There is a world government that is forming right now. Even as we are seated here, it's taking shape. The world government. George Bush, in the State of the Union address in 1991, he talks about the new world order. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in a common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace, security, freedom, and the rule of law. A world in which there is the very prospect of a new world order. And actually, the idea of a world government was already stated by James Paul Warburg, the financial advisor to the you know, Federal Reserve in 1950. He said, we shall have world government. Whether or not we like it, we are going to have world government. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by consent or conquest. How is it going to be achieved? By consent or by conquest? Brock Kisom says, to achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, loyalty to family traditions, national patriotism, and even religious dogmas. That's how they're going to achieve it. And the Antichrist will rise up to help to accomplish that. I don't have time to go into that. That is for another time, another season. But this leads us to what is going to happen in this world. The new world government is being formed even without us realizing it. In the financial, in the economic, in the political arena. But is this what God wants for us? Can a one world government stop conflicts? And what is God's view of man's government? Even the world government. It all started in Babel, the Tower of Babel, the wickedness of man. And the same situation will persist in the last days in Matthew 25, 24, verse 37 to 39. And God's solution is not the world government of man, but He will form a new government. This government will rule over the whole earth. So it is a kingdom of God. It is a new world government that we can look to. In God's economy, Christ has terminated the old creation for the germination of the new creation in His resurrection through His death. And by His upcoming appearing, He will also smash, crush the aggregate of human government throughout the history of mankind and will establish the eternal Kingdom of God. That's what is going to happen at Armageddon. Human government will be crushed and He will set up the eternal kingdom of God. The government of God is coming. In Daniel chapter 2, the theme of the entire chapter is the God of heaven who deposes and set up kings, reveals that he will eventually replace all human governments and all human kingdoms with his everlasting kingdom. God 
is coming to do just that. God's kingdom will replace all human uh, governments. What is God's government? We pray, let thy kingdom come. Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All that government have promised us, many of them have not been fulfilled, cannot be fulfilled. But God's government will end all problems and make a peaceful paradise even on this earth during the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we are looking forward to. Everybody say, let thy kingdom come. It is in this hope that we live as dual citizens on this earth, looking for a better country. That's where our hope lies in. Let your kingdom come. So God and Caesar, Christians and government, you know the word of the Lord right now. May the Lord grant us grace and strength to do what we have to do and to look forward to His ultimate kingdom. Somebody say Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Shall we all stand together? Thank you, dear Lord. Hallelujah.